the purpose that we're trying to serve is to make sure the customer has access to products when they want it, where they want it, and how they want to buy. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 73, and today's guest is Ujwal Dut. Ujwal is currently the CEO of pet pharmacy retailer Alivet and has had an extensive marketing and digital commerce experience with brands like Charming Charlie and DXL Group, retailer catering to the plus-size man. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ujwal Dut. Ujwal is a D2C e-commerce and retail executive obsessed with influencing the optimal customer journey and has spent time building engaging, customer-centric organizations and platforms for over a decade. Having successfully compounded e-commerce business trajectories and managed tens of millions in annual marketing budgets multiple times, he strives to keep building fast-growing and agile organizations. He has diverse experience in aspects of direct and digital marketing, retail stores, technology operations, e-commerce, business development, and analytics. He's currently the chief executive officer at Alivet, a fast-growing and leading pet pharmacy retailer in the United States. Alivet is an innovative pharmacy retailer focusing on creating a better solution to help pet parents manage their pet's health. Ujwal, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Nice being here. Uh, interesting about the uh, pet space. My daughter has a dog now um, that she got with her uh, now husband about three years ago. And prior to that, my wife and I were not dog people. Um, but after seeing Lucy, my daughter's dog, um, we are now committed to uh, being uh, dog people. Yeah, you're not a dog person. And then everything changes when you get one. Uh, I'm actually gonna uh, we're uh, we're gonna get a lab in three weeks from now as well. My son is almost five, and uh, I'm excited to have uh, have the lab. Oh, that's nice. Well, good good luck. When we uh, do these shows, uh, we like to get started uh, giving the listeners kind of the first story, uh, something you know talks a little bit about the upbringing that you may have had, um, and you know oftentimes what we find is that uh, what people do in their career is sometimes foreshadowed by the way they were brought up and and kind of their early experiences. So so give us some uh, perspective of your early life. I grew up in India, actually, and I grew up in a big city in India, but I, I'm going to say big city, and then I also grew up in a very small town in India. Uh, I grew up in my first, uh, about until I was uh, 10, in a big city called Mumbai, Bombay, India, and very much a vibrant financial capital with the movie industry and access to all sorts of Western things from a culture perspective, from a food perspective, from the lifestyle perspective, 
And then when I was 10 years old, I was shipped away to a boarding school. And the boarding school was in a small town in the middle of the country, actually bang in the middle of the country. And it was an all boys boarding school, a beautiful, beautiful school. And also one of the most enriching experiences I've had early in my life, having to make sure uh, I had clean clothes, having to make sure I was eating on time, having to make sure I was doing all the things that I had to do. But most importantly, the experience I learned out there is really being pushed to the limits. And whether it's pushed to the limits as in staying away from family when you're 10 years old, to being pushed to the limits from running that extra mile in a cross-country race when, you're, uh, when, when, you, when you don't think you had it in you, to being pushed, to being disciplined about all the things that you need to do. And I think it left a lasting impression on me and who I have become now. Uh, in the U.S. for almost two decades now, I came here to do my MBA at Syracuse University. And uh, one thing led to another. And I told my parents I'm going away for two years. And two years has turned into almost 20 now. That's uh, that's good. You know, we, we have uh, something in common, or a number of things in common, but one is uh, our relationship with XRC Labs. Um, you know, we are both uh, mentors of that incubator. Um, how did you get involved? Maybe explain what XRC is and, and how did you get involved there? And are you still involved? Uh, XRC is a business incubator. And um, I got involved out there because I have been involved in the startup, high growth, e-commerce retail space for a decade and a half now. But um, I always wanted to give back. I always wanted to give back in terms of my time and in terms of expending energy on something that makes you feel more satisfied. But selfishly, I also enjoy keeping track of new technology. I enjoy keeping track of new concepts. I enjoy networking and engaging with uh, not just individuals, but new ideas. So all of those reasons led me to start pursuing being, being a mentor at not just XRC, but uh, even ERA, which is also based in New York. And uh, that's just, I guess, a combination of things, giving back along with being engaged in the technology and retail and innovation space. Very similar experience uh, to the reasons I got involved and why I've uh, stayed involved. So it's uh, I've learned uh, from each of the uh, uh, cohorts that I've been involved in, you know, always feel like I learn uh, as much as they're looking to learn from me. Um, I feel like I learned from the, uh, the, the, the early stage companies uh, Maybe another reason why I always have had a lot of respect for founders. And I love hearing founder stories. Having worked with so many founders in my career at all the companies I've worked at, I enjoy listening to how and what inspires individuals to say, hey, I'm going to give up this job. I work in finance and I make X amount and I'm going to give this up and start something. It's just founders that are built uh, a different way. Their DNA is very different than most of us. And I, I truly just enjoy engaging with inspiring people. 
I want to jump right into, and you know, I, I mentioned that you're CEO now, and we'll come to that. But let, let's talk about the the chief digital officer and the chief marketing officer titles. Um, you know, there's a lot of you know changing in the in the space. Um, how how do you view those two titles? Are they the same? Are they different? What's your point of view? I think they're different right now. They were even more different uh, ten years ago. I think the chief digital officer title maybe came along around 10 years ago when uh, e-commerce, I mean, 10 years ago, we were in around 2010, 12, and that's when sizable organizations started investing heavily in e-commerce. And that's when they realized the need for all sorts of digital mechanisms to drive consumer behavior. But what was 10 years ago, a minority in investment has become a majority in investment in time, energy, resources, capital, and marketing spend for most organizations, whether you're in retail or you're a CPG or you're even, even uh, an organization that is a traditional industry like maybe real estate or pharmaceutical is now evolving to spend a dramatic amount of dollars in digital disproportionate to other channels and other mechanisms. I think that title has come a long way. I do see a future where it will blend more and more. And if I think about how my role changed from chief digital officer to chief marketing officer, maybe I did get some additional responsibility in doing that for brand elements, but largely because for an organization where the spend is driven through digital mechanisms, largely the role remain the same. And I do see a future where it evolves further into the chief customer officer or chief growth officer. That's what really will start to evolve. And we've already started seeing that. We've already started seeing roles similar to chief customer, chief growth officer, because the marketer is responsible for defining the customer focused strategy, understanding the customer and creating insights about the customer and building a roadmap to grow the organization based on those insights. And all of what I just said is two things, customer and growth. So you could call it marketing, you could call it customer, you could call it growth, but they're all going to become one role uh, in the future. And then obviously many tributaries of that. You were involved in the pet space uh, 15 years ago with a company called Pet Care RX. Uh, interesting that you've kind of come full circle in in the vertical. Uh, but you know that was 15 you know years ago, 16 years ago. Lots has changed uh, during that time. Tell us a little bit about what your role was there, and and maybe you know what you learned uh, at that point to help set up some of the things you did later in your career. I enjoy this question a lot because at CareRx is where I learned my, I'm going to call it uh, e-commerce 101 or blocking and tackling e-commerce. And if you think about 2007, 8, 9, those were the years when things were just getting started where the dot-com dot .com bust had happened five or six years prior to that. And the foundational belief in e-commerce was on shaky ground. And there was a whole new breed of brands coming up, which were redefining what e-commerce meant, where if 
if 99 to 2001 was web 1.0, that was really web 2.0, where there was better technology to market to the customer. That was better. That's when we started hearing the word attribution. That's when we started hearing the word, uh, it used to be called CPA back in the day, what's become CAC now, cost per acquisition, and it used to be called CPA because most advertising deals back then were done based on CPA uh, with various, various vendors that I could think of or partners I could think of. But I enjoyed that experience a lot because that's where I learned everything that propelled my career. I'm, I'm thankful that I got that opportunity. And I always, whether you call it the right place at the right time, or you call it the yearning to learn and keep learning more and perfect my art. I spent a lot of time out there just experiencing many different functions where our controller went on maternity leave. So I started managing our inventory and did a little bit of financial reporting for a few months. I was involved in warehouse upgrades. I was involved in the call center with driving more sales and driving better customer service as a value proposition for the business. I obviously was involved in marketing, and one day someone left who used to manage email marketing and CRM. So guess who got to do email marketing and CRM? It was me. So I, I learned the nuts and bolts of how to build the engine, and then I, I sat in the driver's seat and started driving the engine after building it. So it was a very enriching experience. You know, I love the uh, basic blocking and tackling uh, phrase. I use it a lot. My uh, LLC is called Details Interactive. And and although the word interactive is probably dated, but uh, I started that in 2010, you know, really, um, we, we like to say here, the devil is in the details. And, you know, all that basic blocking and tackling really uh, does matter. So, you know, in your Pet Care RX, which was kind of your uh, kindergarten, if you will, of e-commerce, uh, let's just talk a little bit about testing. You know, you you obviously um, have been in a lot of different uh, e-commerce businesses. One of the things that I see oftentimes people testing just because they can, how do you become a little bit more discriminating in what you do test versus what you can test? Back in 2007, 8, 9, there was nothing called testing, or at least it did not exist the way it exists today. I believe optimizely went on to become one of the leading companies, was even founded after that time. It was founded in 2010. Uh, the first A-B testing platform I remember using was something called Google Optimizer. Uh, Google Web Optimizer, Google Optimizer, uh, one of those names. And it was just brand new. And how do you measure a test? How do you set up a test? How should the control group and the test group work? And it had been done in other verticals. I mean, the I've written about this, but the pharmacy vertical is probably the best example for what's what's uh, helped us build a foundation for how tests are conducted, where they experiment with drugs on uh, animals and humans to understand the efficacy of drugs. But we really, in e-commerce, have taken a page out of a book that's been written by other verticals. And the challenge with testing is always the same. I think the use cases depend on what you do and what your unique selling proposition is as an organization. So you can test things, for example, that make your unique selling proposition stronger. 
what is it that's unique about you as a brand and what do you test to make that unique selling proposition stronger is one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is there's always a constant struggle for time and resources and energy. And how much time and resources are you dedicating to something versus what outcome are you trying to drive? And if there's four people or five or six individuals across teams involved in bringing something to life, you want to make sure that it's going to drive the multiples yield that you're looking for. Uh, and so the it's the, the easiest way to put it is effort versus impact. And uh, that creates the opportunity. But I think the most important thing out here is a couple of things. The first one is testing is not something you do just for the web. And that's how it started in 2007, 8, 9, 10. But it's a philosophy. And in roles I've taken after Petcare RX, where I've done literally at this point, maybe thousands of tests across different channels, it's a philosophy you imbibe into the organization where, you know, the, the moment that I was most proud of at an organization where we had just changed the culture to become a test and learn culture that I heard someone, I overheard, overheard a conversation from someone in, uh, I, I believe, our customer care team that said, why don't we try this script versus that script to see how customers react? And this is without marketing being involved. That was the high point for me on, okay, I think job done, check. We've changed the culture of the organization because it's permeated the organization and it's not just marketing. The devil's in the details. You probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Um, let's go to um, your, your time at uh, uh, Charming Charlie, because uh, I think that um, you know we we both have had quite a bit of a parallel experience. You spent time at, at Charming Charlie. You spent time at uh, the XL Group, which we'll we'll talk about briefly. You mentioned uh, I think you called out around direct mail, um, and that's a big part of of some of these brands. And you know I I start I started in the catalog space, and then ultimately moved into digital. How is direct mail making a, a comeback, if you will, if you believe that uh, in some of these businesses? 10 or 15 years ago, direct mail was a silver bullet for many industries. Uh, if you think about fashion specifically, I have heard over and over again, even before my time in fashion, where Charming Charlie was seven or eight years ago at this point, and it was the silver bullet to drive traffic in. There's such a wrong perception uh, in the industry about what direct mail does, what it's meant to do, and what it's capable of doing. And I think we've right-sized that over the last few years, and we've realigned what truly reality is. And it's the same concept of trying to figure out what it does through A-B testing and through control groups. Uh, back in the day, if you ask, if you ask retailers, what percentage of their spend went to direct mail is probably in the 30, 40, 50%. And I think most retailers have right-sized that now. 
Some of that came because of tougher times and the need to right size. But I feel like how how we in the last two years have evolved. And if you think about, I'm gonna I'm gonna connect. I'm gonna try and connect the dots in two or three different ways. Uh, I'm doing this in real time, so bear with me. But with COVID, we have learned to live in different ways. We have learned to work remotely, and that's become acceptable. But it was a forcing mechanism. COVID was a forcing mechanism for us to be able to do that. Uh, with with the recent events, uh, and I, I don't mean to get political, but with the recent events in Eastern Europe and in Russia, there has been a forcing mechanism for many European countries to adapt, to move away from the dependence on the energy sources that they have today. And they've done that pretty successfully all within the span of one year. Similarly, within retail, there was a forcing mechanism of tougher times. We need to adapt our marketing. There is a need to adapt our marketing. Let's try and make sure direct mail is working the right way and actually creating the results we believe it's creating. And that forcing mechanism, I gave macro examples, but direct mail and retail is probably a micro example of it wasn't it wasn't that the industry wanted to evolve it's that they were forced to evolve and that actually helped the industry move to digital channels let's talk about uh, dxl group uh, tell everybody what dxl uh, group is uh, and the channels that you were uh, selling in dxl group is the largest retailer and the leading retailer for big and tall men's apparel in the country and there isn't a great solution for the big and tall man that has traditionally been underserved by the big box retailers and other apparel retailers whose sizes go from small, medium, large, all the way to Excel, maybe to Excel, but the starting size at DXL really is 2XL. And it goes all the way from 2XL to 8XL, and the waist size that retailers might stop at a waist size of 44 or 46, but DXL really starts at a waist size of 42 all the way up to a waist size of 70. So the fringes for retailers is the core sizing at DXL. And this man who has been underserved and underappreciated in society in many different ways, the goal at DXL and the objective and the brand mission is to empower this customer to lead their best life and try and create confidence through apparel by giving them the best options to build a wardrobe so they can look great and feel great. How did you think about the fact that, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, you've got brands that are selling in stores, they're selling online, uh, you know, in the early days of online, you know, the retailer really kind of pushed people, you know, online or pushed them into stores. It seems like it's evolved now. We kind of have more of an approach of, you know, put the best product that you can both online and in stores, give an omni-channel experience and let the customer decide where they want to shop. Is that how you kind of visualize this? The way we thought about it, and we've written about this publicly and Harvey, uh, who's the CEO at DXL, has even spoken about this on the earnings calls is the the purpose that we're trying to serve is to make sure the customer has access to products when they want it 
where they want it and how they want to buy. And the biggest part of that is creating an infrastructure that enables the customer to do that. And to create the infrastructure for the customer to be able to do that, you need to think about all the permutations and combinations for the customer just might want to buy online through their mobile phone. So your website needs to be not just responsive, but optimized in many other ways. The customer might want to buy on the app, but still have it shipped to home or buy it on the app and then have it being picked up in the store. Your customer might want to buy online and pick up in store. Your customer might want to go to the store and have it shipped to their home. Your customer might want to go in store. And if a, if a customer is has a waist size of 60 and they want a specific color of pants, that pant might not be available in store A, but we can go to another store that's closest to their store and have it shipped either to their home so they can try it on or have it shipped back to the store where they went to. But I just defined five or six different permutations of how the customer might want to shop. We thought about that pretty actively on how the customer might want to shop and the infrastructure was built to enable that. So the customer can basically go into any store or online and have all the inventory from across the country enabled for them to be able to do that. Like it. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the model for most advanced retailers uh, today. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you know throughout your, your career, you've um, had experiences with loyalty, you know, and every business, not every business, but, you know, most businesses today have some kind of a loyalty uh, program. Um, it's turned into an, it's an opinion. Uh, in some cases, it's turned into one of those check the boxes. Do I have a loyalty program? But really, it, it should be something, at least in my view, view uh, that is offering value, uh, perceived value anyway, to the customer. How do you think about loyalty in the roles that you've had? Either launched or redesigned four loyalty programs across different companies. And I think the fundamental shift in each of those examples, uh, maybe three of the four of the examples, was it was a very transactional program. And we changed that and shifted the mindset for it to become from a transactional to uh, engagement-driven program. In some cases, the program didn't exist, so that's how we started. And that's another topic for another day on uh, what you can do without any technical debt. Debt is just leaps and bounds beyond what you can do when you have technical debt. But um, the, the fundamental thing was how do we create a program that engages the customer versus just, hey, this is a cashback program. If you think about airlines too, their airlines and hotels probably invented loyalty decades ago, and all of their programs have changed dramatically too, where it's not just mileage depending on how many miles you've flown. I'm a miles junkie, so I, I do keep track of it a little bit, but it's become a little bit of how you fly, how you spend, how you engage in other ways, and that's really what uh, I think retail or loyalty programs have either evolved to or I think will continue to evolve towards. And the foundation is really built on engagement, but how do your customers engage with you today and how do they want to engage with you in the future? And how do we drive further value for the customer now? The loyalty program is not for all your customers. The loyalty program is for your loyal customers. And it's 
to create more loyal customers. So as much as everyone might say, we're, we're trying to create everyone to be a loyalty customer. Honestly, a loyalty program is for your top 10 to 20% customers. Your goal is to take the top 10% customers and make them more valuable based on what they're doing and take the 11 to 20% of your customers, which is a second decile, and try and make them just as valuable as your most valuable customers, the top decile. There might be supplemental things you're gonna do that try and engage a lapsed customer through loyalty, but I don't think a lapsed customer cares about a loyalty program. I think a lapsed customer might care about something very different, but it's definitely not the loyalty program. Good food for thought there. Um, so yeah, that's why I like doing these podcasts because I learn something new in each show that I, I do. So let's talk about your newest and latest role, Alavet, president and CEO. That's recent, uh, I believe. Congratulations. Thank you. I made, it, I made it past the first 100 days. I'm joking about that these days because I'm, I'm in my fourth month here. Okay. Well, that's that's great. Let's talk quickly about the leap from maybe leap is the wrong word, but um, you know now president CEO um, have been you know uh, chief digital and chief marketing officer. What's different about that? You know now you've got oversight for all channels, you know all aspects of uh, of a business as opposed to you know marketing and customer. I think uh, the biggest difference is the the mindset, and the mindset needs to change, and the I'm. I'm actively and very consciously changing my mindset to try and spend more time on elements of the business and things that I am less aware of and less knowledgeable about to help me as a first-time CEO become more well-rounded in aspects of the business that I don't fully understand. But in terms of managing the PL and managing the growth strategy, that part is more similar than, uh, than not, because I think as the marketer, I've always also had to define the strategy and define the roadmap for how we're going to execute for the customer. Maybe out here, it's more comprehensive where it's not just the strategy for how to engage the customer, but the strategy for how to engage the customer, how to motivate the team how to manage the team and how to build infrastructure to be able to service the customer that we're then trying to drive. So definitely a different lens, but I find myself consciously thinking about the areas that I need to spend more time on to become well-rounded and to, to balance the, the equation of how I'm thinking about not just growth, but also operational excellence. The, the Alavet uh, business, I, other than um, knowing that you work there and spending a bit of time, uh, you know, I was not a, uh, not, certainly not a customer. I don't have a pet and uh, didn't know of the business. What's kind of your, um, the space? Is it around um, meds? Is it around other kinds of accessories for pets? What's the business? So we are a pharmacy and we call ourselves a true pharmacy because we focus on your pet's health and we focus on uh, chronic conditions specifically. And uh, a large majority of our sales come from chronic conditions and prescription product. We don't disclose what percentage, but it's uh, a significant percentage. And uh, OTC and maintenance 
drugs are obviously a focus as well. But at the core, we are a pharmacy and that's what customers rely on us for. Now, our business model is uh, we're a B2B and B2C retailer where we have our own namesake uh, website called alivent.com and we're a direct-to-consumer company from that perspective. But we're also very much engaged in trying to humanize healthcare for pets and there have been some tailwinds for the industry in the last few years with the pandemic and more consumers getting pets and the care for pets becoming more accessible. We are trying to make it accessible for consumers by partnering with large retailers, big box and club retailers grocery retailers and pharmacy chains to try and create a white glove solution for pet rx as a service and we have some of those partners today and if you think about the partners we have they have a massive audience of consumers and customers and a lot of those consumers and customers already have pets they can get a lot more of the share of wallet by creating the solution with us we we do it we do it all for them and it's a white label white glove service we offer for our partners so that's the second part of our business which is more b2b to c uh interesting i wish you good luck uh with your new role uh it sounds really interesting and uh you know i've talked to lots of other folks that have made that uh you know leap to uh, first time uh ceo and and i think the approach that you're taking is is similar to what i hear from others spending time in in the areas that you're you know we we all tend to migrate to the things we know best uh so you sometimes need to force yourself into the things that make you perhaps a little bit outside your comfort uh zone back to when you were 10 years old going to boarding school so see how it all comes full circle that's that's great all right so we uh at the end of the show we do this two minute drill seven questions one word answer ready maybe <laughs> okay it's easy all right a brand that you admire or that inspires you uh i would say trader joe's favorite app on your phone uh i am a runner so strava last website other than amazon that you shopped from target something that you're not good at but wish that you were i wish i had more linguistic skills i wish i knew more languages charitable organization that you're passionate about um anything to do with uh, kids and uh supporting kids because they are our future if you had one superpower what would it be this is a tough one i want so many of them but we did this at dinner recently uh if i had a superpower it it would be to be able to um predict better know the future and last one other than family what's your most prized possession uh time okay uh ujwal where can people reach out to you on social media if they would like I'm mostly active on LinkedIn and my email address as well as my first name, last name, and Gmail. So it's not quite social media, but LinkedIn is probably the only one I'm, I'm active on. 
Okay, great. Well, look, best of luck. Uh, thank you for making the time to uh, share your experience with our listeners and, and with me. Uh, look forward to uh, seeing how you guys progress at, at Alivet. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Ujwal Dude for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, one of my favorite terms was used by Ujwal very early in the podcast, basic blocking and tackling. Every business has so many complicated things we have to do to be successful that we sometimes overlook the simple things. Be sure that you have the basics covered, the right data, the right metrics, the right analysis, and then begin to focus on those tasks that will be successful because of the strong foundation that you've built. Number two, push yourself to get outside of your comfort zone. Ujwal spoke about going to a boarding school as a 10-year-old in India. It's where you learn to live without family and to take care of yourself. Perhaps getting out of your comfort zone is more about taking a new job or moving departments within the same company. Push yourself to do different things throughout your career, if for no reason other than to build a broader set of skills for yourself. And number three, mentoring. We've discussed this often on this show. It's not just about you giving back, but with each time I mentor a founder or a new college graduate, I learn from them. Founders are incredible. They have an idea. They're not afraid to fail. They usually have to sell themselves to others while they look for financial support, and then they have to sell their idea. Find a way where you can be a mentor to someone, or perhaps if you do not currently have one of your own, it could be the right time to find one. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.